Hello, Liturgy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we dive back into our mini-series about post-conciliar documents. And a quick reminder, if you're going to the Focus Conference in Phoenix this year, we will be doing a live podcast on January 1st, 4.15 p.m., Come see us do our podcast. Chris will be there this year. And if you can't make it to the podcast, but you're still going to the conference, come stop by our booth. Say hi to Chris and Dennis. Make fun of them all you want. That would be great. Don't make fun of me because I'll take it personally. So without further ado, episode 14 of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, guys, I'm ready for this series of documents here. And uh, I went to the Vatican website, pulled it up so I could at least know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they got that old papyrus background. <laughs> and, and you can't read the text. And I think it's in Comic Sans. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not in Comic Sans. But you know what I mean? They still have that old web page up. Yeah, I don't know that the Vatican is known for its high-tech, cutting-edge uh, electronic uh, wizardry. So, Electronic <laughs> wizardry. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's a good band name, Electronic Wizard. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, Where I told you, you, I just copy all the text off the website and drop it into a Word file and change it to a font I can read, and then I print it. That's how I, that's how well, I read these things. So. I love that idea. But for this one, actually, it's available on Autoramus. Chris, do you know anything about Autoramus? It's yes. a really cool site. Autoramus, yeah. I'll link to it in the in the show notes. Great. All right, well, we're moving along in our post-conciliar documents. It's exciting, exciting, mm-hmm. exciting as that is. Yeah. Especially with a name like Interocumenici. I oh. did not know how to spell that when I was yeah. looking for it. It's O-E-C-U-M-E-N-I-C-I-C-I. Ecumenici. So what does that nice. mean, Chris? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, inter would mean uh, they render it here among or... Among. Yeah, the and ecumenici means... Uh, yeah, ecumenical. So it would be so, among the ecumenical council's primary achievements... Yes. Is? The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, or at least so they claim. What was the first one? (laughs) It was the first one, yeah. Uh, Because it regulates the most exalted Exalted sphere sphere. of the church's activity. Gosh, don't they kind of know something, right? The church does all kinds of things, but the most exalted is entering into the worship of heaven and all the stuff Paul VI said and Vatican II said about the minister of the Holy of Holies and Christ at the right hand of the Father and singing the, with the warrior of the angels and saints and the song of heaven and waiting for the second coming. This is the most exalted thing you can do. I would even I would even go so far as to say that this document will have ever richer effects as pastors <laughs> and faithful like deepen their understanding of its genuine spirit. I, that's what I've been saying for <laughs> minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, hey, that is so true though, right? So this is still in the first uh, paragraph of this document. That says sacrosanctum concilium, you know, will have its effects uh, to the degree that people have a deep understanding of it, a genuine understanding of it, uh, and put it into practice, and put it into practice, and, it, and that's uh, that's proved to be uh, prescient. Is that the word? I think so. Yeah, because uh, 
in, in places where that hasn't happened, the liturgy is uh, certainly not as uh, effective as it might otherwise be. So who understands the principles and norms of the council and who interprets and implements them faithfully? That's when the liturgy is going to succeed. So this document is put out by... Chris? Yeah, so this is uh, in a previous podcast, we talked about this group called the Concilium for the Implementation of uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, with our uh, uh, Archbishop Bonini uh, in charge of it. This is this group that Paul VI said he was going to establish back in January, and he did in, I don't know, March or something like that. And then this document is the fruit, the product of the Concilium. And so this is coming out in September 64, right? So this is 10 months after Sacrosanctum Concilium. Did this group do all five of these documents that we're covering? No, only the first three, and then it ceased to exist and turned into... Oh, no. Well, no, it was meant to. It was meant to. Oh, okay. Although, again, this is is what Pope Benedict would say, is is there was a group called, I think, uh, is it Concilium, (laughs) who just wanted this constantly ongoing, uh, morphing, changing uh, liturgy rather than letting it rest on the firm foundation of the documents. So no, it was never meant to be a, a forever type of animal. It was supposed to do its work and go away. Right. It's a subcommittee of what they call the Sacred Congregation for Rites back then, which we would call now the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. They had a task, implement Vatican II. Okay, when mm-hmm. it's done, it's done. Yeah, now th- I found this interesting too, right? Is this the first council that's done this? Right, because people... Uh, say, well, you know, the council said, you know, A, B, and C, and then this group came in and did X, Y, and Z, and they, these were these so-called experts who, uh, who did all these changes, but these aren't the changes of the council. Yeah, I don't know who, like, who put together the, the missile after Council of Trent. Uh, you know, just, there must have been somebody, I'm sure Pope Pius V didn't write it out himself. So. Yeah, well, there must have been a working I, group somewhere. Hey, that, that, that's just the point I think to take is that Trent followed the same paradigm. The, the, the Council of Trent, even though it lasted for 18 years, I think something like that, they didn't uh, reform the Missal. It was this group of experts after the council put together by the Pope that got together and actually carried out the reforms of the Council of Trent. So at least this model of having a smaller subset of experts um, do the actual reforms is not unique to the Second Vatican Council, but happened uh, at the Council of Trent as well. But your results are only as good as your experts, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see. So this, this concilium and this document... So yeah, you have the Constitution. Then we saw Paul VI and Sacram Liturgiam give some. And you notice all those things we talked about in that podcast, all of those could happen immediately. It didn't take, you know, the reform of the actual books to do. Give the homily. Permission was given right away, though. Right. Yep. But what it is, is you didn't need. Yeah, it was given right away because you didn't need to wait for a book to come out to tell you to give a homily. Or to have a seminary class on liturgy. Exactly. But this, what they're trying to do, and this is what it says in the third paragraph, um, the Concilium sets out more sharply the functions of the bishops' conferences in liturgical matters, explains more fully those principles stated in general terms in the Constitution and Paul VI document, Sacrum, Litur- Liturgium Sacrum, and authorize and mandates that those measures be uh carried out before the revision of the books, right? So they're going to give more specific ritual things that can be changed while the books are still 
uh, being revised. So right? there's so no th new missile at this point, right? Everyone's still no using the 62 missile. missile. So this is rules how to how you can have exceptions from what would have been the rubrics. Yeah, before. well, you're you're mostly right. Uh, well, <laughs> you're only mostly, you're mostly right. Mostly right. Better than better than not right. No, because uh, I have in front of me this Roman missile that was published in April of '64. Do you always have that in front of you? Always, I carry it with okay, me everywhere. Okay, got it. Uh, and so, and that has uh, some of the readings and things in uh, uh, in the in English in this case. Um, so it's mostly just changes of vernacular. Um, so is this applying to that missile no, or to the 62 no. missile? See, but that 64 missile that came out, excuse yeah, the 64 missile that came out in April is basically the, the Tridentine missile or the missile of uh, John the 23rd, you know, that was, uh, that was uh, the last one done in 1962. Mm. So, yeah, but back to your original point, Dennis. Yeah, these things are all applicable to... I guess we would say the extraordinary form or the missile of, of 62. So they're not a part of a revised missile at this point. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So you hear about people alive at this time saying every week, something changed. We would do this. And then the next week it'd be that. And the next week it'd be that. And in a way it's kind of just as the books are coming out, little things are changing here and there. I mean, that must've been a little bit unsettling for people. I think. Well, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, look in that, look in that paragraph four though. About, you know, so the council, the goal it wanted to promote before all others was the active participation of the faithful. And this document says in number four, the faithful will more readily respond to the overall reform of the liturgy if this proceeds step by step in stages and if pastors present and explain it to them by means of the needed catechesis. Yeah, and I wonder this, about that. Like everything else uh, seems to be exactly what didn't happen. Is that people showed up one morning and hey, where's our high altar? <laughs> oh, we ripped it oh, out overnight. Yeah, yeah what, 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 what's going on here? Did, yeah, people just just overnight, bam, it changed. We didn't know why, and everything was different, which is exactly contrary to what was supposed to happen. Right, but paragraph five, which has actually got some good stuff in it, it says that it's the shared conviction that the Constitution on the liturgy is not just about changing liturgical forms and texts, which is. Good, because what's more important than changing liturgical forms and text, Chris? Uh, it's meant to bring to life the kind of formation of the faithful and ministry of pastors that will have their summit and source in the liturgy. Okay, well, what the heck does that mean? The Well, have keep going. Look at number six. I think that paragraph number six is uh, maybe the best summary of Sacrosanctum Concilium. All right. Well, what does it okay, say? Pastoral so. activity. So people doing what they're doing, guided toward the liturgy, has its power in being a living experience of the Paschal mystery. Bam! Right? You hear, like, we should have living liturgy in some of the old books from the 70s, and that, to them, many of those authors usually means, like, folk music and supposed authenticity. But if you really understand it properly, the living experience of the Paschal mystery means anamnetically, right, making real the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in our world so that we can share in its effects. And if that's not what's experienced in participation, then you're missing out on the graces of God's own divine life. And it's, it, that's what it says here, right? Um, yeah, that's what it says exactly, is that this this living liturgy is living because, uh, because Jesus, our high priest and redeemer, has died and come back to life. And now that uh, grace is available through the sacraments, the baptism and the Eucharist and the sacramentals and the celebration throughout the year. That's what living liturgy means. And right. that's what so it means to get a liturgical life. Communicates his divine life to the world. I think at the end of the day, 
That's the question. So I think sometimes liturgy people get carried out with carried away with laws and footnotes and legal thinking. But really the question is, is this increasing or decreasing the capacity of the liturgy and people to receive the divine life of God in the world? That's really the ultimate litmus increasing. test for me. Is it increasing or decreasing? Well, I mean, the choice, any particular choice that's made. Is this song that you were going to sing or not sing? Oh, you're talking about at a practical Yeah, the practical it. level. Is this decision liturgically for investment, a building, music, incense, not, Latin, English, chant, whatever, is it going to increase or decrease the capacity for people to receive uh, God's own divine life, which is, which is the goal? I remember I had a conversation with my, well, I won't say who because she might listen but oh uh, you were gonna say mom no it wasn't mom it was sister it was one of my relatives and we were talking about mass and i was you know (laughs) being a griping liturgical person and i said oh such and such this pastor always goofs around and she liked the pastor so um so she said, well, well, why do you even come to Mass if all you're going to do is complain? Not an unreasonable question for me. <laughs> and I said, well, I said to get to, to get divine life. And she went, divine life, bah, whatever. <laughs> oh, no. And this is a person who goes to Mass every Sunday and often daily like for her whole life. But that phrase, divine life, was sort of like something. She just thought, not only had she not heard of it, she thought it was kind of ridiculous. Of course, she was angry at me in that moment. So maybe if we had a more subtle discussion. You should have said Christ life. Well, I don't know. Either way, that was not part of her formation. Right. But I like this. I like this part, and I don't know what you guys. If you guys want to go to number seven, so sorry, but um, I like this. The end of paragraph seven, where it says, "Especially necessary is a close living union between liturgy, catechesis, religious formation, and preaching," because I think that's a that's a way to do this, in which we, we we're not really seeing it, and that's a way to start implementing that at the practical level. Right, and here's the connection between liturgy and public works of the church, whether it's you know service to the poor or you know justice, as we call it now, is that the grace of God, the divine life, transforms the world. And if you're not transformed by the divine life, your capacity to transform the world is going to be reduced. And then you have to bring other people to the grace that transforms the world. So to just say, well, we, we pray privately over here and then we feed the poor privately over there is not to see the whole organic whole of what Christ as priest, prophet, and king uh, supposed to supposed to do for us. So then, there's a bunch of norms here, Chris. Right? Mm, yeah. Uh, the, maybe th- this point's been made already, but it's interesting that it gets uh, it reiterated in this uh, in this document. I'm looking at it, uh, number ten, in the second paragraph. It says, you know, whenever any of these things that uh, the le- this uh, <clears throat> instruction is meant to change uh, are implemented, it says they should. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, there should be a pr- reasonable preceding interval provided for instruction and preparation of the faithful uh, regarding their observance. So if something's going to change, when something comes out, there's going to be a little bit of time. It's not going to change overnight so that you can preach and prepare everybody for what is coming uh, along the way. So. I like that they put the Latin word for interval as vacatio. It's like there needs to be a little vacation until the next change comes along. <laughs> <laughs> so, like All right. So, yeah, it goes through. Uh, let's see this. 99 paragraphs uh, in this baby and it goes paragraph through a whole one. bunch of yeah, paragraph one uh, the first one that I highlighted was about this is about the liturgical formation of the clergy at number 13 so I mean we worked on the seminary campus there for a while it says liturgical celebrations shall be carried out as perfectly as possible bam rubrics shall be observed exactly and ceremonies carried out with dignity bam. Boy, if that happened that would be nice 
Well, it isn't though. I mean, right. So the reputation is, is that, you know, this, the wheels came off after the council because it allowed for all this. Well, the, again, here we see pretty clearly that the instructions say just the opposite. As perfectly as possible, rubrics observe, observed exactly and carried out with dignity. Right. And th- here they're talking about liturgies at seminaries and places mm-hmm. where people are formed in, in the priesthood. So, you know, again, Reynold Hillenbrand, Monsignor Hillenbrand, who was the rector at Mundelein, really believed this, even in the 30s, that the best way to, to learn the liturgy is to actually do it. And if you think about all the times you've learned how to sing the Our Father, like, did you ever go to a, a choir rehearsal for the Our Father? No, you just hear it every Sunday. Or if the music is uh, done well, all the hymns that people learn and the, the traditional chant settings, you learn it by doing it. And the more perfectly it's done, the more you learn how to be liturgical. You know, to take it back to my liturgical jacuzzi again, right? If your jacuzzi is not hot, you don't know what a jacuzzi is. If your jacuzzi doesn't have bubbles, you don't know what a jacuzzi is. So do it as perfectly as possible. And so there's your your way of learning yeah. the nature of the liturgy. I've actually <laughs> been to a Our Father choir rehearsal. So <laughs> You have not. You I have. I lie. have. Why do you lie, I, you lying liar? I have. I ha- I was in choir in church at Loris, and there was a priest there who made um, an arrangement to the Our Father, and it was a musical arrangement. And so we would have choir practice before Mass, and so we had to practice that because we had never done it as a okay. congregation before. So, Well, I'm talking about the Our Father. I know, I Chant in the Missal, not somebody yeah, else. You're pretty anyway, r- repeated Our Father business. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but look at number 14, right? This document doesn't just say that uh, in the seminary the, the celebrations are to be carried out with exactitude or exactness. Although it does say that. It does say that. It says uh, that the spiritual life of the clergy must also be liturgically formed. It says books are to be recommended on the liturgy, especially in its theological and spiritual dimensions. There's to be meditations. There's to be conferences. The community's devotional life is to be liturgically based and the rest. So this isn't just some empty shell of liturgical observance. It's supposed to be enriched with real theological and spiritual substance. Right. And if your life is transformed by liturgy and you're living a a liturgical life, it's not just about the ceremonies being perfectly implemented. It's about understanding it inside, inside and out, how it affects your life, your private prayer, your devotion, the liturgy, the scripture, all of that stuff. And so um, much more than just do it the right way. Although, boy, if we could just get that part done today, mm. it would be kind of amazing. Yeah. Hey, why don't we look at some uh, real precise uh, changes that this uh, inter-ecumenity recommends. Okay. So I'm looking at uh, number 32. So again, imagine this is the the missile in 1962, uh, and here's some things that they're calling for that can be changed uh, already before actual new books come out. Uh, let's see, 32 and 33. Let's see, uh, the parts belong to the choir or to the people, and sung or recited by them are not to be said privately by the celebrant. Now, well, that's we had a question about yeah. that recently. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, if you go to Extraordinary Four Mass today, sometimes you'll see the priest will say the Kyrie at one point, and then the choir will be singing the Kyrie later, and the priest has moved on. And there was kind of notion that if the people were singing something, it was something for them to do, and the priest and the people were not necessarily doing it at the same time. And so I think this is bringing together this notion of the mystical body, that the head and the members are doing one thing together at the same time instead of just keep the people busy while the priest races ahead to get through all those Latin words, right? Yeah, well, and again, even if the the even if the the people would say the priest I think had to say every text of the mass, I think. So, even if they were singing the same the same text he was doing, he would have to recite it as well. This is right. no longer the case. Right. Uh, let's see. 
number 36. You see those, Dennis? This is about simplification of certain rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is, you know, this will be more or less clear to you insofar as you're familiar with the extraordinary form. Um, uh, incensing uh, is to be limited to the one altar where the rite is celebrated. So I don't Which know, kind that... of implies that they would, would they incense other altars if you had three altars in your sanctuary? I think so. I really? think, okay. I think so. And Whoa. D, the kissing of the hand of object, uh, kissing of the hand and of objects presented or received is to be omitted. Oh. So I don't know if that, that was one of my it's... policies at the liturgical institute. Anybody who came oh, into my office with anything. So glad you left. Kiss yeah. my ring. Yeah. What are you going to implement, uh, Jesse? You... Same thing. Now, so, you know, this kind of simplification of the rights is kind of a modern thing, right? It's streamlined, getting rid of things that, that sort of smelled of royalty and the way that kings may have been uh, addressed or sort of court ritual that didn't seem to make sense anymore. You know, it is interesting, though, when you go to an extraordinary form, especially in some of the um, religious orders that have different traditions, and you see them give a chalice to the priest and then they kiss their hand, there's something kind of cool about that. Like, these hands are the hands of Christ, and they're going to give me the Eucharist, and I'm so grateful. On the other hand, you can see how it might come across as a bit antiquated and kind of slowing things down. And You know, we're always in this, in this middle ground between do these high levels of ceremonial formality uh, increase the richness and therefore the importance and the legibility of the liturgy, or do they just get in the way because people are looking at the hand-kissing and not the essentials? And so at this time, they're choosing simplicity as the, as the norm. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's good. That's well said. But I about said good said. <clears throat> uh, number forty. The basis of the translations is the Latin liturgical text. Bam! How odd is that, right? <laughs> so don't just make up the text that you're going to translate, but it's actually the text in Latin. Yeah. No, I think, and especially today when there's uh, debates about uh, translation and how much is it to be, uh, I don't know, uh, accommodated outside of the liturgical text to. Uh, kind of the receiver language. I mean, this is it. This has always been the case that the basis as the translation is the Latin liturgical text, right? And you could say, well, if the Latin text comes from Scripture, right? And the Scripture is either that's Aramaic what I was going to ask, or Greek, or something. Well, do you go back to the original language source and like, nope, this this is the translation of the Missal. It's not a translation of Scripture, at, you know, from the source before the Missal. So yeah. that's still an issue, right? We had that discussion about um, the Italian Bishops Conference. You remember that, Chris? Yes. Uh, Glory to God in the highest and peace to what? Do you remember what peace that was? Peace to people who God likes or something. Like <laughs> yeah, oh, God loves oh really? And part what? of the argument was that they were going back to the original translation of the scripture and not the translation of the, of the missile. So these ideas are still with us. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's true. I think uh, Liturgia Authenticum says you can consult these other sources, you know, from which the liturgical text came. But in this case of the... Yeah, that Italian glory or whatever it was. It wasn't a translation of anything. I mean, and that's, uh, that's certainly not what Interacumenici says. Yeah. But you know what, too, I like about this uh, group six here, letter E. It says, special attention should be given to the high quality of the books. Oh, used I saw for that reading, too. So that even the book's appearance may prompt greater reverence for the word of God and sacred objects. Boy, doesn't that just undo the kind of missalette thing? Oh, let's just have a crummy newsprint thing that we throw away every six weeks. And it's like, oh, or yeah, the gospel the, binder. Or the gospel binder with the little holes and all that stuff. And you're just like, man. I know uh, Father Martis was very concerned about the, the Mundelein Psalter being in a book that was just decent. And, you know, it's, it comes in these questions about 
can you just use an iPad liturgically or not? And it seems to me that that's not really a good way. The books themselves. As long as a, you have like a leather case, I think it's fine. Well, <laughs> a red hand tooled leather case with gold mm-hmm. yeah, on your phone. Um, but the question is, does it bring greater reverence to the word of God? And Talk reverence? about illuminated text, right? Mm-hmm. Huh? But it makes a good point that, uh, you know, even in this post-conciliar period, you know, even they, they even wanted the books to be beautiful and reflective of uh, these heavenly realities, which are, yeah. And then the 70s happened. Oh, yeah. I know. Jesse, for you, the 70s are ancient history, but for Chris, that, especially. For me, they the never 70s, existed. They never yeah, happened right? for Jesse. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Let's look at some of these in, uh, let's see, number 48. So these are some changes to the, to the order of Mass. Uh, let's see, uh, letter C. In the prayers at the foot of the altar at the beginning of Mass, Psalm 42 is omitted. Remember what Psalm 42 is? Is that the, uh, the altar of God who gives joy to mm-hmm. my youth? That's it, exactly. Judea. Judea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that is omitted. Uh, now, why would they get rid of that, Chris? I mean, it's been there a long time. It shows the priest preparing that the altar, to go up to the altar is such a great thing. And even if the people aren't saying it, it's like to see the priest, to say, I, I'm not worthy to approach the altar. I'm going to pray this prayer that I may be made worthy. Wouldn't that be yeah. edifying to the people? Yeah, it is. And I think uh, I, I think in some ways it's it's loss. Uh, there's some detriment to losing it, but I think what the what the principle is here is that it's kind of the nature of not just the mass, but of life, I suppose. Is things begin to accrue uh, to? I mean, think about your own night prayers. I don't, Jesse. I don't know if you find this with your family, but I know that uh, in the 20 years, 22 years, I guess, since uh, the Karstens, uh, Margaret and I have been married, you, know, you kind of start with this this kernel of what your night prayers are like, and then. Then something comes along, you got, and you add that to it, and then another intention is needed, and you add that to it, and then you start to have kids, and then you add that to it. Do you do you find that your your night prayers are, are evolving as you go along? Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've really just. I I would say that we I've really tried to solidify our like domestic litany of saints too. Mm-hmm. So like our children's patron saint, and then uh, my wife, uh, my wife's confirmation saint, and my confirmation saint, and then any particular devotions that we have. Uh, for us, it's our mother, perpetual help. Yeah. And so really trying to solidify some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that we can, the the middle part is still evolving, you know, yeah. and sometimes the kids want to do different things. So it's, yeah, you're yeah. right. Well, I think if I ask you this in 10 years, your your night prayers will be different. And I think this is what, what happens in liturgical history is things generally kind of accrue, especially at starting and stopping points. And I, I think, I wish I knew my liturgical history much better than I do, but I think th- these are private preparation prayers of the priest, which exist in different places throughout the Mass, but a number of these became, uh, you know, for better or worse, casualties of the Reform, taking the the, the private devo- devotional means a lot of things, but the private prayers of the priest and eliminating them. So it's good that the priest prays these things, but I think that's that was the rationale for cutting them out. Right, I think they saw them as preparatory prayers for Mass that belonged more properly in, in the, in sacristy, the sacristy, sacristy or something. Yeah, yeah. And precisely. if the Mass rubrics were basically the rubrics of the private Mass and there was nobody there to wait for your private prayers to be over, then that was not an issue. But now that they were trying to make the liturgy become public, that's seen as kind of unnecessary. Yeah. Now, the wisdom of that over the years, you know, we can assess that 55 years later and say, hey, I don't know, maybe, I, I mean, personally, I don't go to the extraordinary form that often, but I do occasionally. And to see the priest say, I'm not worthy to do this, Lord, make me mm-hmm. worthy to approach the altar. Mm-hmm. I find that very edifying. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's another principle uh, what in the Constitution that no changes are to be introduced um, 
Right. Unless so, the good of the faithful is <laughs> absolutely insured by them. Right. Something like that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there can, there can be uh, informed debates on the wisdom of this, uh, a lot of them. Let's take another one. Yeah. Uh, a letter G in the recited masses, the congregation may recite the Lord's Prayer. In sung masses, they can uh, sing it in Latin. Right? Along so with the celebrant, right? Instead of just saying, sed libra no samalo at the end, like extraordinary form mm. often does, right? Yeah. Uh, they changed at letter I the formulary for distribution of Holy Communion uh, to be simply Corpus Christi, and the communicant would respond, "Amen." Right. Which, and no uh, sign of the cross made with the with the host. Right, right. So now, uh, well, in '62 or in the use of the '62 missal, uh, say, "May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep your soul safe for eternal life." In Latin, they would say, and then the celebrant himself would say uh, the word, uh, "Amen." Uh, letter J, the last gospel is uh, omitted. The Leonine. That's the Gospel yeah. of John, right? Yeah, the prologue. Yep. Oh, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Huh. Yeah, and oh, the extraordinary sure. form, it's still there. And you know, it's it's funny, like, you think, oh, these pious prayers, why not meditate on the Gospel of John? Well, if it's the post-communion, well, like the post-mass communion prayer for the priest to meditate, you think, okay. And, and as I've seen it, most of the time, it's sort of like everybody thinks they're done, and then all of a sudden this prayer gets kind of silently murmured and nobody knows when to kneel during the word became flesh and it, it becomes in a way this kind of weird caboose that gets in the way of leaving you know and i know that's not the intent that was my nickname in high school the weird caboose it gets yep. in the way of leaving yeah <laughs> so you know if the prayer is not really functioning as a prayer anymore but it's kind of just this thing we have to do because mass is over and the book says so then you have two options, right? Make it part of a living prayer tradition, or they've taken the get rid of it side of things. And the Leonine prayers, you know what those are? Yeah, well, hey, just as an example of that, as I understand it, you know, the, the blessing at the end of Mass uh, used to be as the priest would, would leave the church and he'd give people blessings along his way back to the sacristy, I think, kind of like the bishop does today. Uh, and in the 62 missile, there's the, there's the dismissal and then the sign of the cross versus the, the blessing with the sign of the cross and the dismissal. Now, so in this instance, Dennis, they, as you suggested, they integrate it into the mass rather than having it be kind of, a, you know, appendage, um, you know, accruing to the end of mass anyway. Right. And the Leonine prayers were added yeah. by Pope Leo, right? This, the, um, even this is confusing. Our father and the Hail Mary and the St. Michael prayer. Yeah, it's like three, three Hail Marys. I, uh, a quick look said that they actually began with Pius the Ninth, and then Leo changed them, and so they they had really been changed a lot as well um, over the last couple of centuries. Yeah, yeah they were Hail after Mary's. low mass, only after low mass. Yeah. Okay, a couple. Now, other, if you're a conspiracy yeah. theorist, though, you're like, well, the Leonine prayers are for the triumph of Holy Church, and then it became prayers against you know the atheistic Russia, and then what do we do? We get rid of the prayers, asking God's help against Russia, and so some evil intent to get rid of these things, and. Before you know it, you can come up with lots of conspiracy theories. I don't, uh, I don't have inside knowledge if there was some malintent here, but you can, you can at least make the claim that somebody thought they were doing the right mm -hmm. thing in streamlining these, these prayers. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to, uh, let's see, number 56, the uh, prayer of the faithful. In places where the universal prayer or the prayer of the faithful is already custom, it shall take place before the offertory after the Oremus. So isn't it often the case that after, say, the creed, the, the priest would turn to the people and say Oremus and then just kind of go on with Mass? I think that's where the, the universal prayer had been, and that's where it would be reintroduced there as kind of the conclusion of the liturgy of the Word. 
Right. And that's, again, one of these questions. Is the prayer, is the universal prayer, the prayer of the faithful, is it actually doing what they had hoped it would do? Or has it become a distraction? People are writing these things on their own, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. And, you know, the idea is to gather up all the prayers and petitions of the people, put them on the altar, and let the priest take them to, to God. So if it's not done carefully, it can come across as, as an interruption rather than something. Yeah, helpful. well, in, in some ways, it's the, I've, I've seen, may, heard this comparison before. The universal prayer is to the liturgy of the word, what the reception of Holy Communion is to the liturgy of the Eucharist. That is, they're kind of hmm. the, the terminating end high points of both of these, you know, kind of liturgies is where the people are exercising their baptismal priesthood in the case of the universal prayer interceding uh, for the salvation of the world um, it's it's a very powerful moment now how many people know that or has it been taught to them is, is another question but uh, it's loaded with uh, a great deal of significance right and then we get to the part about use of vernacular in the mass right so mm. I was reading this and it says, the Holy See, by its decisions, may introduce the vernacular into A, B, C. And then it, eventually I realized that's pretty much the entire Mass, <laughs> right? Where Sacrosanct and Concilium says the readings and the universal prayer, but then they add into it Kyrie, Gloria, Creed, Sanctus, Sanctus Dei, yeah. oh, Offertory, right. it has everything there. and the readings. Yeah, it might be easier to say what's not included there. Right, which, which is the private I, prayers of the priest, basically, right? Well, in the, is the Eucharistic Eucharistic prayer in there, I don't think is named. And I think it's the offertory prayers as well. So those would still be still be in Latin. Do you see Eucharistic prayer there? Well, at 58, it says, The Holy See alone can grant permission for use of vernacular in those parts of Mass that the celebrant sings or recites alone. Yeah. So that but, would be the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah, but at this point, there's no permission. Right. So uh, according to this instruction, things could be in the vernacular, except for the priest's private prayers and the Roman canon. So people do ask sometimes, well, I read Sacrosanct and Concilium, and it only gave permission for the vernacular in the readings and the prayers of the faithful. How did it wind up in all these other places? Well, this is, a, this is how it, it happened. They got permission. So it's, it's legitimate uh, by law, right, that you can do this, even if the council documents don't, don't say yeah. it by name. But what's 59 say, Dennis? Pastors shall see to it that the Christian faithful, especially the lay religious institutes, know how to sing or sing or recite together in Latin the melodies and the ordinary, the mass proper to them. And Paul VI would say the same thing, that the people should know their parts in Latin, even though yeah. the vernacular is sometimes uh, permitted. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. This is the kind of thing that Michael Davies would have called a, a time bomb of Vatican II, that, oh, you may use vernacular becomes... We only use vernacular, right? And so we kind of do everything backwards. We take the exception and the permission and make it the norm, and then the norm becomes the exception. Hmm. Document goes on, talks about some of the other sacraments, confirmation, marriage, sacramentals. There used to be all these reserved blessings, and a lot of those uh, were no longer reserved after this document. Reserved for the bishop alone. Reserved for the bishop or certain right. groups. So now the pastors can do some of that stuff. Yeah, uh, divine office, uh, little offices. Dennis. Yeah, what's a little office? Sometimes yeah, what that. is a little office? I, I mean, think I, I, I have a pretty big office here, but <laughs> not me. I can celebrate the little office in my big office. <laughs> it's uh, like a smaller abbreviated form of uh, the brief. I suppose it's uh, Genesis came from, you know, again, if, if you, you know, if you're a monk, you're going to spend six or eight hours devoted to praying the office and other prayers in the chapel. If you're, if you're a, 
diocesan priest or a layperson, you might want a little office or something more, something abbreviated that is more accessible. And more able to be more abbreviated than a breviary? <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good, Jesse. <laughs> Well, the breviary is actually called that because it was shortened for the papal court because they were so busy doing Pope stuff. So it was shortened, and that's how it got the name Brevarium, which is why they don't want to call it breviary, but the Liturgy of the Hours, right? You don't want to say it's the short book. No, it's the Liturgy of the Hours at the Divine Office. And so I think I've heard that some of the re women's religious communities, especially the apostolic ones with teaching or nursing or whatever, would have a shortened office, sometimes called the Little Office of the Virgin Mary. And so they're giving permission for people who did that to use the vernacular yeah. as well. Dennis, go to number 91. You're so bossy, Chris. All right, now. I go to number 91. The main altar should be preferably freestanding. Mm -hmm. To permit to per walking around it, which is the old rite. You had to incense all the way around it. But then they add and permit celebration facing the people. So there you go. It's not mandatory at this point, but they're, they're kind of suggesting it's going to, going to happen. And should the sanctuary area be spacious enough to accommodate the sacred rites? That's yes, what it I should. think. That's uh, in 91 as well. And, you oh, know, yeah, you're right. It is. It Ooh. sounds kind of obvious. Well, why wouldn't it? But, you know, so you look at some of these little churches from the 1890s, 1880s, and they have these little teeny tiny sanctuaries with three altars in them, and there's hardly any room to have a procession or, you know, an ordination or anything like that. Strangely enough, you see that a lot in new churches today. They have these tiny little sanctuaries where you can barely walk around, especially if they have a church in the round and they have seating on three sides. The sanctuaries are, are quite small. So what they're trying to allow is room for the full celebration of the rites. They say the same thing about the main altar, the chair for the celebrants, that they uh, it should not have any semblance of a throne. Um, and the minor altars, that's a phrase I like because we talk about the principal altar in a church and other altars or devotional altars, but... Uh, it says there to be fewer minor altars, and the best place for them is in chapels somewhat set apart from the body of the church. So I think the current legislation is just one altar in a church, no minor altars anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but back then they had the notion that you might have a separate chapel with a separate altar. But, I want, but back to this 91, though, I mean, there's a difference between a freestanding altar and the direction the, the celebrant faces at the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Yes, if you read the documents and the you know the pushing of ideas in the twenties and thirties, way before any of this, they liked the idea that an altar was a freestanding thing that you'd get around it and do stuff on the other side. You could incense all the way around it. You could see the side. You could see the back, instead of kind of hidden, half hidden under a big reredos or a big screen of, of crockets and Gothic stuff and angels and saints. They liked the early Christian model of the Roman Basilicus, which is the Baldacchino or the Tester, which is Baldacchino without columns, over a freestanding altar. And they thought that was bringing it back to the authenticity of the of the early church. You know, as we wrap this one up, I, I just want to ask you both, right? In, in what we've discussed here in Interecumenici, do you see continuity between it and Sacrosanctum Concilium or a rift between it and Sacrosanctum Concilium? Mm. Continuity. I see continuity, but then there's also this expansion of the things that uh, Cyrus Shannon and Cotillium allowed that are not there specifically, um, which I guess is their job. They have to make decisions. How far is this vernacular going to be implemented? And I suppose you would think that they have the permission of the Pope and the Holy See is the one that has the authority to do these things. So I guess whether any individual likes it or not, it's, uh, it's legitimate, as they say. Legitime. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I see on the whole, uh, I think a lot of continuity. I mean, it's how this is read and implemented 
you know, we ran a we ran a piece in Adoramus in March 2019 about you know what was <laughs> Susan Benefi wrote about going what was happening at this time and which she, she suggests is you know all the all the bishops were away and it became the I don't know it fell to uh, uh, experts uh, real or imagined to implement this and uh, sometimes the implementation wasn't consistent not only with the constitution but with this uh, document itself but yeah yeah so it didn't anyway. just like Vatican II didn't fall from the sky the actual missile as it was received later in 1970 did not fall from the sky either there were people making decisions not guaranteed of infallibility necessarily but you know at least you can give them the presumption of I don't know if innocence is the right word, but the presumption of goodwill. I know there are many who don't, um, but this is the process, right? And so 55 years later, you kind of ask, well, was it prudent? Was it right? Was it good? How, how much wisdom do we have now? And so this is what became known as the reform of the reform of Cardinal Ratzinger and others who say, okay, well, we tried some stuff. Maybe we need some reforms in the liturgy. And so that school kind of still exists, the reform of the reform. Um, and that's where we're talking about all these things in this podcast and other places. Well. I have a question, Chris. Mm. Can we answer a liturgy question? Mm, yes. <laughs> Did the concilium specifically give us inform- the permission to answer liturgy questions? In no, the, but in the we, can requ- we can request the permission. Okay, the Holy See is... So I'll let you know when we get approval. Okay, got it. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Jamie. Jamie says, hi, big fan of the podcast. I have two questions for you. Uh, They're pretty similar, so I'll, I'll ask you both of them, Chris. Regarding ranking of liturgical days, should you treat your patron saint's feast day e.g. your name day, as a solemnity. Obviously, this wouldn't apply for daily mass, but I would think it'd be relevant for the private recitation of the Liturgy of the Hours. Where a holy day of obligation falls on a work day in the U.S., should it be treated as akin to the Sabbath, e.g. no work? Or is that not necessary? So that's a two-part question from Jamie. Chris, what say you? Mm, uh, to the first one, uh, Jamie, when you talk about your patron saint i presume that means like your your name saint your personal saint so like saint christopher right. for me on uh june 25th would you say in the office the solemnity for that i th- i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think it makes some sense i mean on or the if one it's hand, your, what if it's yeah, your parish uh oh, parish no, solemnity. If your, oh if it's your parish saint if you're francis xavier on december 3rd celebrated as a memorial that is for you your parish a solemnity so that, that's there's no question there. That's spelled out clearly in the uh, norms for the um, liturgical year and calendar. Yeah, but if it's a, your own uh, uh, personal saint, like your name day, your namesake, or something like that, and you're going to pray morning prayer, you know, at home, would you say that is solemnity? I think you could. 
Uh, on the one hand, liturgy is a communal and universal thing, and we sort of leave our personal preferences in some ways behind, yet you never shake them. You never stop being that individual. So I think there's, there's, uh, I, th- I think, I think it'd be, uh, I think I'd do it. I like the idea. Yeah, I'm kind yeah. of I'm kind of mad I didn't think about it. Yeah. Well, again, it's you know it doesn't. You said like it, but I'm just gonna pick on you, Jesse. It doesn't matter <laughs> oh, yeah. if you like it or not. Is it reasonable? Is it keeping with the mind of the church on doing these liturgical things? And I think the answer is yes. What about uh, a holy day of obligation falling on a uh, like a work day? Yeah. Uh, this is Canon twelve forty seven. 1247 on Sundays and other holy days of obligation the faithful are obliged to participate in mass moreover they are to abstain from those works uh, which uh, an activity there's a typo in here on the from those works which hinder the worship rendered to be God the joy proper to the Lord's day or the suitable re- relaxation of mind and body so yeah at least uh, as is codified in the in the code uh, it, it does say that uh, holy days of obligation, whenever they fall, are to be treated in the same way as a Sunday. So if that's possible, then uh, that's what should be done. All right. Well, Jamie, I hope that answers your question. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Or you could try to time travel and get to Chris before he learned how to avoid technology and like write him a letter or something. So <laughs> thanks, Jamie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>